If they're staying in this, in this, this externally rotated position, then what they're going to try to do is turn their pelvis. They're, they're going to try to anteriorly orient their pelvis to create the downforce, which would be the internal rotation. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. So we just wrapped up the intensive 13 yesterday. It was outstanding. You should have been there. Um, we did a couple things that we've never done before. We did this big expansion on the Camperini deadlift. For those of you that like to, to play around with that exercise, we broke down the cross connects and all that kind of stuff. In addition to um, revising and evolving the model as we always do during these these uh, intensives so i had a great time the guys are working hard on their intensive 14 preparation right now so again looking forward to that next month okay digging into oh wait a minute quick housekeeping note uh ifs university we have a q a today at 1 p.m eastern standard time if you're not an ifs university go to ifsuniversity.com get signed up and please join us at 1 p.m okay now, today's Q&A uh, is with Sam. So Sam's a, a coach, and he had a series of clients that, that all kind of came in with the same physical structure, same representation, and they all end up with, with, with uh, uh, anterior hip pain uh, symptoms during some, some squatting. And so we kind of broke that down a little bit, bit for Sam. We talked a little bit about solutions. Um, I wanted to give you a little bit more of that. So what I did is I, I took the uh, three hip impingements, three solutions video, tacked a chunk of that on to the end of today's video. So today's a little bit of a longer one. It's gonna be 20 some minutes for you, but, but you'll get a really good representation of what you're looking at when you have those people that, especially with squatting, um, end up with, with uh, anterior hip pain. And because uh, it can be a big deal and it can be a lot of interference, you have to rule out structure. Um, so just be really, really careful as you progress those fine folks. If you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, Go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday, and I will see you tomorrow. All right, Sam, go ahead. What's your question? Okay, uh, so in the past, like, three weeks, I've had three or four clients all complain about hip impingement in, like, the same exact spot. It's, like, on the front side of the left hip, um, and they all complain about it's just pain during flexion uh, and then during uh, abduction also. Um, and then like also during squatting. Um, so basically, and I mean, my manager, we came to the conclusion that it could be a possible labor issue through some like two or three tests. Um, and I was just wondering, like, could it be uh, like a programming issue on my part, basically just putting them like through in positions that could be causing this issue or is it like, or like how else would you go about determining what this could possibly be? Because I've had three or four people in the last like two or three weeks all complain of the same thing. Well, so is it is it showing up before they get to you or is it something that's happening while you're working with them? Uh, it showed up basically uh, right, it would be right, right after while I'm working with them. Yes, it would be right after their initial like first set of like squats. It, they okay. were so, so they didn't have the symptom prior to? No. Okay. All right. So, so number one, you, you, you need to protect them. So if this is, if this is something that's new, that that's, a, that's its first representation while they're working with you, then and again, it, it could be any number of things. You, you may still need to rule out a structural issue, 
Okay, but now you have to take into consideration what might be going on. Okay, so under the circumstances where if if you're closing the space in the front of the hip, so you're bending the hip, and they're getting symptoms under those circumstances, that space is closing too fast. So under those circumstances, typically, typically what's what's going to be happening is that you've got some some posterior uh, musculature that is that is concentrically oriented. So you're getting a compressive strategy on the backside of the hip. So as they bend the hip up and you're, you're bringing it up into like a straight line, which you mentioned, mentioned flexion. So if we're using that as the representation of, of where you're actually measuring this, then you're just closing that, that space is closing too soon. Okay. Um, which again, if you, if, if you notice that you're playing with their foot position, does it change the symptom? Uh, yeah, I tried to have them go wider and closer. It, not really. No, it kind of like they kept it stayed the same even during that. Okay. Then, then you may also have the anterior orientation that, that goes with it. And so under those circumstances, then um, those are going to be the people that um, you want to avoid with that, that deeper hip flexion. Okay. Because you don't have enough space there to, to move them into it. So number one, don't do stuff that hurts. Okay. First rule. Right. Secondly, you're going to have to create some space. So um, again, if you have to, to reorient the, the, the pelvis so it, so it captures some of that posterior orientation that they might be missing, you do that first. All right. You need to create some external rotation space. So, so when you have somebody that, that orients forward, their external rotation moves away from midline. So it moves, moves out to the side to bring their leg back in, whether you actually create space, you have to move the pelvis back first then you might have to recapture an early representation of propulsion. So this is where you have external rotation available to you. So, so I don't know if you guys do direct, do you do direct measures of, of hips and things? Uh, what do you mean by direct measures? Sorry. Like, like, like you, you, you actually move somebody into hip flexion, like, like you check it or no. Uh, no, not really. No. Okay. So, you, so you have to have a representation of it. So again, their ability to sit comfortably might, might be sufficient, um, or to, to be able to move their, their knees towards each other as they're sitting to, to sort of capture that, that, that position. Um, so you need a test retest to make sure that you're, you're not reinforcing the anterior compression of, of the hip. Okay. So, so again, you might have to bring the pelvis backwards. So under those circumstances, you know, you're going to use some form of activity where the you're changing the orientation of the pelvis. Okay. And then you have to be able to turn into that hip. Okay. So, so that is superimposing internal rotation on top of the external rotation. So you bring the pelvis back and then you teach them how to turn into that, into that front leg. But first things first, just make sure that you're eliminating all activities that would reproduce the, the symptoms. If the symptoms persist, then you may need to actually send them to a health practitioner to, for evaluation to rule out any structural abnormalities because they do happen. Some people have them and never know until they do something. Okay. Um, so you said, you said bring the pelvis back into a more uh, posterior orientation. So is that essentially just like cueing them to basically rotate that and have that like sorry and sit that back more or? possibly possibly yes but un under under many circumstances you might have to do something 
that's kind of floor based, you know, put them in, in some form of like a hook lying activity to, to teach them to, to bring the pelvis back. Chances are if they've got any anterior orientation, so that's the whole pelvis. So that's, that's the sacrum and the, the anominate bone moving together. And you might need to be able to, you, you might have to restore relative motions first. So under those circumstances, you have to reduce the anterior orientation. Otherwise you don't get the relative motions back between the the, the, the two bones. So again, it might be something in hook line. Um, it might be something that, that um, would be considered um, like lower glue or, or hamstring oriented kind of a thing, right? Um, sometimes you can do it in, a, in like a shallow staggered stance. Um, if, you, if you put them in like a right foot forward, left foot back, with a with a cable chop towards the towards the back leg, you can actually create the the early representation of the pelvis under those circumstances, and then that again that brings the pelvis back, and it also starts to superimpose the internal rotation on top of it. So and and it doesn't it doesn't compromise the the hip position under those circumstances because you're not compressing the the front side of that hip. You're in sort of like a, a very shallow. Um, lowered center of gravity versus a deeper squat where they're going to have symptoms. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so essentially just take them off of, okay, just take them out of areas where they're having pain, first of all, and then uh, bring them into more exercises that would bring them into more posterior. So they right, right. So you've heard me talk about cross connects and arm bars and rolling and things like that. So yeah. all of those, all of those activities can be useful under those circumstances. Right? Okay. But again, you, you, you gotta be careful that again, don't create the irritation. Right. Right. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. There's that yeah, you in, the, in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, I didn't, didn't know where to go. Um, basically I just tried a few different things, but yeah, I got a much better right. idea. Where think about that. You think about the musculature on the, on the backside of, of the, of the pelvis that attaches to the ischial tuberosities, like hamstrings, lower glutes, those activities that are going to bring the pelvis backwards. Now keep in mind, it is not squeezing the glutes together. Like, like people tend to do when they posteriorly orient their pelvis. So you got to make sure that you avoid that. Okay. Cause that is literally creating the compressive strategy that got you there in the first place. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, if, if you um, need to progressively lower them down, you can use your, your box height, right. Start at a higher box, make sure you're avoiding the, the positions uh, that, that are, are again, offending. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Any, anything else? Um, I guess that, no, that was the main thing. I just had like four or five people that had the sorry, four people that that happened to. So I was just trying to think of different strategies that uh, would go about in fixing that, but um, right. no, pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, a lot of the representations that you're going to see are the people that need to squat with their legs out wider or they toe out excessively. Right. Or you'll see them do a split squat and their knee deviates away from midline or they roll to the outside of their foot. Those are going to be the people that are going to be predisposed to this thing. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a space in the front of their hip so they can lower themselves down into those situations. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I noticed all of them had like that kind of narrow infrasternal angles and they all had like the kind of like the wider hips along with that. So I don't know if that all had something to do structural wise. So, or... Yeah. It's somewhat because the, the narrow, the narrow ISAs are going to be biased more towards an externally rotated representation. 
Okay, which again, so as you lower yourself down into a squat or into a split squat, you need to move towards internal rotation. If they're staying in this in this this externally rotated position, then what they're going to try to do is turn their pelvis. They're, they're going to try to anteriorly orient their pelvis to create the downforce, which would be the internal rotation. Right. So again, you have to create the expansion on the back side of the pelvis, which is the external rotation. So bring the pelvis back, create the counter nutation in the sacrum, ER representation in the anomnate, and then you can start to superimpose the internal rotation on top of that. And like I said, that's why I kind of like the staggered stance um, stuff because it, it doesn't lower them into the offending position and it starts to create this representation of the, of the early propulsion, which is what you actually need. So you need an ER in the pelvis, yes, but you need to bring them back to an early representation. Chances are, if they're having this symptom, they're still ER'd, but because of the, of the pelvic position, you're getting a late propulsive representation, which is not going to give them the same amount of space, okay? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Any other questions? That's it, sir. Awesome. Okay. Um, if you have any other questions, just let me know, okay? All right. Thanks a lot. Hey, man. Have a great day. And this comes from Chris. Chris and I were having a discussion, and he says, I really appreciate the three impingements, three strategies, three solutions for the shoulder that you did. Would there be something similar going on in the hip regarding uh, impingement? And if so, could you do the same thing for the hip that you did for the shoulder? Thanks. So, um, Chris, you're not going to believe this, but this hip impingement thing is exactly like the impingements in the shoulder. We just have to look at it from the appropriate perspective. And so when we did the shoulder thing, we talked about the, the three classic impingement tests that we would use, and then we gave solutions. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna compare these, these hip uh, representations directly to the shoulder representations, and you'll kind of see how this all plays out. And so we'll talk about like what interferes and what doesn't, and then we'll give some exercise progression. So there'll be a fair number of, of uh, exercise examples in this, I think, as we go through this. So, so let's break this down a little bit. So we had, in the shoulder, we did the Hawkins-Kennedy, um, we did a Nears test, and then we did like the classic painful arc. And so the way that these are gonna be represented in the hip is gonna be through our hip flexion, traditional hip flexion measures, and, and through our abduction measures. So, and so, so all of these are going to be representative of, of, of external rotation measures, but the interference is gonna be internal rotation on, on every, in every case. And so we're gonna have a, a situation where, because of the orientation, we're gonna give up some, some ER, we're gonna have an overemphasis on, on the IR, and that's what causes the, the, the compressive strategies that can actually result in pain, or as we would say, a diagnosis of impingement. And so let's, let's look at the Hawkins-Kennedy uh, test first. So if we look at the shoulder, we're gonna see that it's internal rotation at about 90 degrees of traditional uh, flexion. And so that would be representative of internal rotation superimposed on a little bit of hip flexion at 90 degrees in the hip. And so there's there's our, our, our commonality. But what we got as far as findings are concerned is this is gonna be a situation where we've got posterior lower compression. So we're gonna lose early hip flexion um, because ex uh, hip external rotation under these circumstances would be in this early stage of hip flexion. But the problem is, is we gotta think about this in 4D. Remember, it's not an arc, okay? So if I'm coming up this way, that would normally be external rotation. The problem is under these circumstances with the posterior lower compression, external rotation's way out there. And so external rotation goes this away, not straight up in front. If I go straight up in front, I'm moving into internal rotation, which means I'm gonna max out my internal rotation too soon 
And then under those circumstances, I keep driving harder, harder into internal rotation, and I bang into it right at 90 degrees. And so there's my there's my compressive strategy. So what we have here is an outlet, a pelvic outlet that wants to remain narrow, wants to remain um, eccentrically oriented. So as far as interference goes, we want to eliminate all this bilateral hip extension kind of stuff because again, ER is way out there. We want to restore it here in the middle. So so this means that those of you who are, are just fond of your hip thrust because you wanted glute development, let's get off of that train right now. No low cable pull throughs. And then your reverse hypers are also going to be off the table under those circumstances. So from an exercise standpoint, we want to reorient the pelvis and we're going to stick with unilateral activities. And so you know how I love my cross connects. And so we're going to use a cross connect, but I want you to pay attention to something very, very important here. And this is going to be your foot contacts. And so if we're doing a supine cross connect, we want to make sure that we're capturing the foot position on the wall. This is first met head on the ground, so to speak. The ground is now the wall and we got that medial heel contact. We want to maintain that throughout because this is where we're starting to initiate internal rotation from an externally rotated position. And this is what we have to recapture when we're, when we're talking about reorienting the pelvis. And then we want to move to, to something that's a little bit more hip flexion so we can move into a hook lying situation. We still want to induce some internal rotation, so we're going to put something between your knees to hang on to that internal rotation, um, but from a position of external rotation first. Once we can capture 90 degrees of hip flexion, we've got a lot of cool stuff that we can do. So we can start some rolling activities, and we're going to teach you how to roll in, into the affected side, and we're going to drive propulsive strategies on the opposing side. Um, as far as some, some gym related stuff, um, we want to use, uh, we can use our box squat, but we're going to use a touch and go. So remember, we've got an eccentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. We want to concentrically orient that sucker. And so if, if I unload on the box, I'm going to get some of that eccentric orientation and, and some yielding action that I don't want. Um, I, I can then again, because I have 90 degrees of hip flexion, I can start to turn into that side so I can start to capture a true internal rotation at the right point. And so that's going to be my Jefferson uh, split squat's going to become real handy because I'm going to start from that ER orientation and I'm going to hang on to ER orientation as I start to superimpose the normal IR on top of it. Um, we could use um, split stance activities that, that are, are using like an ipsilateral cable load. So if I was doing a left foot forward split squat, I could put the cable in the left hand, hold that left side back, and again, I'm going to move from an ER position to an IR position under, under those normal circumstances. 3D straps that are going to push you push you into the original orientation and teach you how to resist and move into it. Another uh, great opportunity to, to recapture these positions. Um, let's move on to the next one. So we talked about the near, which is which is uh, impingement above 120 degrees in the shoulder. So we're going to represent this kind of the same way. So this is going to be the end range hip flexion measure where we're going to start to, to to feel that impingement. And so what we have here is a situation where um, what I need under those circumstances to have a normal hip flexion end range is I have to have a, a lumbar spine that can turn towards that measurement side of, of the hip, so the ipsilateral side. If, I, if a spine can't turn that way, then I'm going to end up with, with that end range impingement. So this is going to be a wide ISA that can't close. And so now I have a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. So right away, my interference is going to be hinging activities. So i got to minimize hinging activities. The exception might be... Um, a higher box squat with, with a delay strategy on the box so I can get the outlet to, to eccentrically orient and capture some yielding action. So that might be the exception to that. 
Um, we do have 90 degrees available to us, so we can do all sorts of cool things. So we're gonna start in a staggered um, chopping action. We, we wanna reduce the, the effects of gravity, but we also wanna start to be able to turn the spine towards the affected side. And so in the staggered stance, we, we're not compressing um, that hip and we can start to encourage the turn of the sacrum, turn of the spine in that direction. This is where we're gonna to start to use our, our Camperini deadlift because again, we do have 90 degrees available to us. We wanna turn the spine. So I'm gonna put a, a contralateral load on my Camperini deadlift um, towards the heels elevated side. And again, to turn the spine in the sacrum. If I wanna go into a split squat activity, I can do that as well, but I'm gonna elevate the, the front heel under these circumstances. So again, I, I wanna maintain that, that, that yield as I move into that 90 degrees. If I need to um, promote more expansion, more yielding action, I can start to move you into a, a prone propulsive activity as well. Ultimately, what I wanna be able to do um, is, is to recapture an eccentrically oriented pelvic outlet in deep hip flexion. So, so my ultimate uh, resolution here is gonna be a heels elevated deep squat with a band around the knees, but this is not pushing out into the band. This is maintaining an orientation of the femur so I can get the pelvis to move around the femur. And this is gonna help me capture that eccentric orientation of the outlet in the bottom of the deep squat. And so basically we're at the top of the squat. We're gonna take an inhale. We're gonna to exhale to mid range where we would typically have the concentric orientation. And then I'm gonna re-inhale to eccentrically orient the pelvic diaphragm as I sit down into that, that deep squat. Okay, so that covers the Hawkins Kennedy in the shoulder with the equivalent in the hip, the near in the shoulder with the equivalent in the hip. And so now we have to have a painful arc. And so under these circumstances, what we're gonna use is the traditional hip abduction measure, also an external rotation measure. And so what we're gonna see here is we're gonna have a hip that has a lot of internal rotation and not a lot of external rotation. And we're gonna see that limitation in, in uh, hip abduction or external rotation. And we're gonna get more of a lateral type of a discomfort. Where this is gonna commonly show up is, is we're gonna see people with the uh, right oblique orientation of the pelvis. And so where we get the compressive strategy is, is here and it's gonna drive this left side up and over the right side. So this is our typical right oblique. And what we're gonna see is we're gonna see the impingement on this side. And so this is the inability to acquire a late propulsive strategy on that affected side. So from an interference standpoint, we wanna avoid the bilateral symmetrical activities for a while because what we have to do under these circumstances is take that right side and push back into the left to overcome the, the oblique axis. So we can start in left side line with a, a right propulsive type of an activity. Um, in this case, if we go into the gym, we're gonna use our Camperini deadlift again with the, with the heel elevated, but this time we're gonna put an ipsilateral load on that heel elevated side because what we wanna do is we wanna, we wanna hold that back and push with the right foot and, and that load's gonna emphasize that, that right push. So again, we're turning back against the oblique. We can do a right foot uh, forward, front foot elevated, right side loaded split squat. So this is, this is about driving that, that late propulsive strategy on the right side all day, every day. Right suitcase carry is gonna get us, get us there. Go back to, to the video that we did about the suitcase carry. 
it was a week or so ago, and you'll see that we were talking about increasing max P on the opposing side, but we're gonna take advantage of the ipsilateral side under these circumstances, um, where we would normally use like a cable chopping activity in the early phases of trying to recapture um, the, the, the turn of the spine. Under these circumstances, I'm gonna use a cable lift because I'm trying to drive that right propulsive strategy, and it's much easier to do a cable lift under these circumstances and, and still capture the, the turn into the, the opposite side. Um, a little bit of a finish kind of conditioning thing. The, your right to left sled drag is gonna be a nice way to finish because again, we're just emphasizing that, that right propulsive strategy. Um, so Chris, I hope that is helpful for you and for the rest of you. Remember the shoulders and the hips are very much the same, so, so don't treat them any differently. Um, very, very useful in regards to your confirmations and checks and balances in regards to range of motion, so use them accordingly. From there, as I intervene and then, then reevaluate the outcomes, that gives me the next set of information. So I've now updated my representations as to what is in front of me. Then I can decide, okay, do I need to add another test at this point? Because I used to do 77 of them. So I'm very familiar with what I have available. Good morning, happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, a busy Tuesday as usual. Um, quick reminder, if you're not on ifastuniversity.com, I suggest you go there. We had a terrific call yesterday. It was pure fun um, for, for me, just answering questions and, and digging a little bit deeper into some of the model. So we had a great time. Talked about, talked hypertrophy, which is unusual, um, which is always a good time. Anyway, leading into today's Q&A. Um, this was a great conversation that I had with Matthew, a little bit different than, than uh, uh, typical. Um, we talked a lot about data collection and assessment tests and what assessments would be valuable. And back in the olden days before you were born, um, I used to do 77 tests, um, mainly because I didn't know what was going to be valuable to me. And then we whittled away and whittled away and whittled away. And now we have like a, like a foundational representation of about 13 tests that, that I do um, on everyone. And then the test battery would expand from there as needed. Um, but, uh, but Matthew's working through some stuff in regards to, to his data collection. Uh, we talked about how to manage uncertainty. Uh, what did I, I wrote a couple of notes down here. Um, understanding the, the unknown unknowns, how to manage your cognitive bias. This is all really important th in things um, as you evolve as a coach. One of the, 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 the main problems that I think people run into, especially the younger coaches, is they think that there's a cookbook somewhere that has the answers in it. And then you go there and then you read that and then you know everything and that's not how it works. Um, you need to gain experience. It is best to do it under the guide uh, the guidance of a, a mentor if you can do that. Um, so again, Matthew, thank you so much. I enjoyed this call immensely. Um, I wish we could have continued on. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday, and I will see you tomorrow. All right. We are recording. Clock has started. Matthew, what is your question? Uh, so the main question I have for you in regards to um, biomechanics and your model, and I'm fairly new 
to uh, your model in general, but the main thing I want to understand is the data that I should be focused on because at the stage that I'm at right now, I've been into the strength and conditioning world for a while. You know, I started training when I was nine, but even with all those years um, of picking up things and gathering information, I haven't had any organized information to uh-huh. draw back on. Yeah. And I think that even though I might not be able to fully comprehend the data that I'm gather- gathering at this point, I know that in the future, there may be data that will be valuable to me. And if I have it backlogged, then I can kind of reference it and use it to further understand the model as it evolves. Right. right. So right. Uh, as of now, I, I, I have some things like pressure mapping, um, like infrared thermography, um yeah different things like that videoing uh running gate and walking gate and i think those things will be very useful but i'm just wondering how useful they may be or how useful they may be in the future or if i'm on the wrong kind of okay tell you a quick story okay so when when we first opened ifast my assessment on everybody that walked in the door um, was comprised of 77 different tests. Okay. Yeah. And I was really good. So I could smoke through that thing in about 25 minutes. Okay. Yeah. Um, the reason I did that is because I didn't know what was going to be important. Yeah. And so I measured a ton of stuff and I documented it over and over and over again. And then you go through this process of evolution. So this was like what, th- almost 14 years ago now. And, and you, you learn stuff, you, you, you drop stuff out of your system, you bring it back in, you take it out. And, and then now my, my assessment process is 13 tests. Okay. And that's, that's the, that, that'd be like the baseline representation. So everybody that would walk in my door, so it comes into my purple room because um, we do the gym assessments a little bit differently, but, but, but anybody that comes into my room, I do 13 tests as the foundation. So that's the baseline representation that I need to make my first good decision. Okay. Okay. So what you're doing by just accumulating data right now is actually the right way to do it. Like not knowing, but just okay. getting stuff. And that'll change. Like, like there'll be certain things you go, you know, I'm going to start measuring this, or, or it's like, I'm not seeing the value in this. Okay. And so it'll evolve sort of organically as you start making decisions, because you'll find that like there's certain tests that you just don't need every time. And then there's other ones that are kind of really foundational, you know? So when when I talk about, about archetypes and things like that, like narrows versus wides, the reason that those exist is because I constructed those. So I would have a a frame of reference to start from Um, because everybody's a little idiosyncratic in their physical structure, but, but they're going to create biases and things like that. So I take the two extremes and everybody's between those two extremes somewhere. And that's what I'm measuring. So that that's, that's my foundational representation from there as I intervene and then, then reevaluate the outcomes that gives me the next set of information. So I've now updated my representations as to what is in front of me. Then I can decide, okay, do I need to add another test at this point? Because I used to do 77 of them. So I'm very familiar with what I have available. 
I just don't need them every time. But sometimes, sometimes I got to look at a wrist. Sometimes I got to look at an elbow. Those are not part of my standard representation anymore because I, I realize that I don't need that information right away to get started. Because again, I'm trying to, I'm, I've got time constraints, et cetera, every time I'm working with somebody, right? It yeah. doesn't mean that they're not useful. It just means that they're not useful every time. And so you're going to go through the same process most likely is like you're measuring all of this stuff. And it's like, okay, is there something else that gives me similar information or even the same information without me having to do this really complex number of tests or time consuming tests or whatever it may be. So I, I would love to say, do this, do this, do this, but I don't know mm -hmm. what's going to be meaningful to you. Right. Yeah, I, I, think you're, I think you're going to discover that on your, on your own with time. Because again, the, the stuff that's meaningful to me comes from my representation and the model that I use and teach, the stuff that's gonna make, make sense to you. It's like your perspective is different from mine. Now you can still use elements of my model to help you move in a specific direction. But if you have the capacity to measure some stuff, like I don't measure HRV directly. I mean, we have, we've actually done that in the past. We actually did measure it in real time. You know, so, but, but now I have a representation. It's like, oh, I, so when I see people with this combination of, of movement capabilities, I kind of know what their HRV bias is going to be. I kind of know where they're going to be, right? And yeah. so I'm making these associations. And that's yeah. kind of how you do stuff. Because think about this. People are changing constantly. Yeah. From, in all levels. And so again, the meaningfulness of, of something at one point in time might not have the power that it does in other situations. Like I said, if I, I get somebody that comes in with, you know, an elbow wrist problem, it's like, I still need to, to look at the foundational representations because that's my starting point anyway. Then I sort of work my way out into the extremity. And now I'm taking you know, six more of those 77 tests that I did 100 million years ago. And then I'm starting to say, oh, that's what this meant a long time ago, because I still have that representation. So I go back and I say, here's when I did the 77 tests. Whenever I saw an elbow that looked like this, I always had this measure and this measure in a specific yeah. representation too. You see how it starts to fit together? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I think, I think that what you do is continue on the path that you're on and saying, I don't know what to measure. Mm -hmm. I'm going to measure as many things as I can within reason that yes. allow me to, you know, to, to make good first decisions. And then mm -hmm. you will, you will evolve your own foundational um, representation. And you'll say, this test means a lot to me. This test means a lot to me. This test means a lot to me to get me started. Okay. And then you say, Okay, so so you think about like a target. It's like mm -hmm. you got this, you got the center of the target, and like that's the stuff that you gotta measure on everybody because everybody's human. Right? Yeah. And then you go, okay, so I started there and I get this representation. Now I need to look a little bit farther out and I say, okay, what's this other this next level of influence? Yeah. Right? And then the next level of influence and then the next level of influence. And you can look at this as a training process. You go, you, I get this foundational movement representation. What if I superimpose these activities on top of that? What happens? What about, what about um, developing you know, endurance capabilities or force production? It's like all of those are layers on top of your initial, what, what, what I would consider my archetypical representations, right? All of those things become influences as they they gain importance for me but like you know whether i have an nba 
basketball player in or, or a gen pop client that comes in, I start with the foundational representation because that's, that's sort of like the meat and potatoes of who they are. Mm -hmm. right? And so that, that gives me my best starting conditions because I know that from my experience over the last decade and a half is that some of this peripheral stuff is a byproduct of where they started. And so I got to get that, that first, but I, I'm not going to tell you like, you only need to do this, this, and this, because I think that, that if you stay on the path that you're on, I think it's going to be that much more meaningful to you because yeah. you're going to be the guy that makes the decision as to what's meaningful, what you can eliminate now. Don't forget about it because you might yeah. need it. Right. Yeah. It's like, I, I think you're on point with your process. Cause I like that a lot. Cause like, and I'm biased. Cause I think that's what I did. It's like, yeah. I just started measuring everything first and go, okay, what, what do I need? What do I not need right now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, that solidifies it. Yeah. Just, just like anything, walk through the fire and, and, and the end you'll have uh, your answer. And you, and you'll learn number one, because you're doing the discovery. Mm -hmm. It will be infinitely more meaningful to you. It will it will accelerate your ability to uh, consolidate your understanding. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so instead yeah. of instead of going to somebody and going, "Tell me what I need to know," yeah. you're going to <laughs> see. You see what yeah. I mean? It's like it's like what you need to do. What you want to do is you want to discover as much of this. Like it doesn't mean you can't listen to me or somebody else yeah. and, and not make that meaningful. But you got to bring it into your context, right? From from your understanding in your environment, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what's most meaningful to you. And then, like I said, as you discover this, dude, this it it locks stuff in so much more effectively than than somebody trying to hand you a cookbook and then you flipping through and going, oh, if then, if then, if then. It's like yeah. you have your own management system, right? Your yes. own depth of understanding, and then and and that's powerful. That's really powerful, because it's not about being told what to do. It's like I've discovered this, and you might discover things that are already known. That's okay too, right? Yeah. The thing about it is, it's like it's the attachment that you have made to this information through your own toil. That's that's where the power lies. Okay. Yeah. Always willing to help you. Okay. I'm always yeah. willing to help you. Okay. With, with okay. questions and such, but I also encourage you to stay on the path that you're on. Cause it, it's going to be sucky. It's yeah. going to be struggle. You're going to sit and you're gonna just going to be staring at things. You're going to go, I have no idea what this means. I have no idea what this means. And then eventually yeah. something's going to flip and you're going to go, Oh, and then this whole cascade of things comes to you and you go, Oh, that's what this meant because of this, because of this, because of this. Yes. Yeah. For sure. That, 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 that's exactly probably the answer that I was looking for, but probably thought I might've needed something else, but that's what, that's what I need probably. See, I, I, I think, I think you're, I think you're in a position that a lot of people um, sort of like, they get, kind of go one way or another, they sort of latch onto something or they, they, they allow themselves to, to discover. And it, yeah. I think I, I'm not, I'm not negating the fact that you don't need help. Sometimes we all do it, it, you know, getting, getting some foundation of any kind. Like I, I don't deter people from, from doing any of that. Right. Yeah. But eventually at some point in time, you got to start going, I got to find my way. I got to see this from my perspective. You can't see what I see. Mm -hmm. I can teach you what I think I know, 
but you're ultimately going to see it through your own eyes. Yeah, my biases are going to influence what I get. Dude, you want to talk about bias, you should live in my head. It's not pretty. (laughs) But but, but the fact that that you recognize that your bias exists is is helpful. But you will always be challenged. You will always be challenged to, to not move in that direction. It's like you constantly challenge yourself against like, this is what I think. Why do I think it? What are the alternatives? And again, I think that, that when you look at your data collection, that's what's going to be really, really helpful because you're always going to have that other piece of information, whether you use it now or five years from now. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Um, just be as efficient as you can, right? Mm-hmm. And, and then one logical step at a, at a time in regards to your process. I think yeah, and I, and I, I really like what you're doing. I really like what you're doing. Okay, well, I appreciate that. And I guess as, you know, it's kind of the Dunning-Kruger effect. As you get, you know, more competent, you realize you have less influence than you think. And you understand you have, you know, less interventions, avail- interventions available than you think because we, there's so many factors coming in, right? There's so many factors. And I guess now I'm at that period where I've, I've hit that low point where I'm like, there's so many factors that are influences influencing this person. And I don't know which ones are positive, which ones are negative, but as time goes on, I'll recuperate that confidence right. and, and start to be able to, and, and yeah, that, I guess that yeah. ties in. You know, what's funny. You know, it's funny. We were, so we were talking about, I, I think I actually posted on Instagram today. I was talking about uncertainty. So, so I got a question. She's actually one of our interns and, and uh, um, you know, she's got some experience under her belt, but she's still young. And, and um, so she asked a question about that. And, and we talked about how you manage the uncertainty. And so a lot of this comes from, from what you're, you're talking about right now is that eventually you're gonna have to, to recognize the fact that, think about this, all the things that you do know, consider all the things that you don't even know exist. You know, the, the unknowns, uh, the unknown unknowns, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's so much yeah. stuff that we just like, and then we, we give credit where we think it is right. But ultimately what we're doing is we're making associations and we're, and we're managing probabilities, right? Mm-hmm. You, you always have, you always have a potential favorable response and you always, and again, and there's think about this. It's like, there's not even just, there's not even just like the good and the bad. There is like all variations in between. Like you'd be yeah. just a slight side of good, you know, and yeah. you're like, maybe that's good enough for right now, but it's not the best you could have done. What else could you have done? And so, so what I, what I also challenge people to do is, is rely on your process. And so no matter what the outcome is, so let's just say that you intervene with somebody based on the information that you have and a good yeah. thing happens. Is that the best thing that could have happened? Or is it just a good thing? And it's like, what else could I have done? What else could have been a factor here that I didn't even consider? It's like when you ask yourself those really, really hard questions, and that's where you really start to see what your opportunities are. It's like, what else could I have done? Like that question alone, it's like, what else could I have done to get even better? So maybe it's this, maybe it's that. So maybe the next time you see a similar scenario and you start to intervene in the same way, you go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to experiment here and I'm going to tweak this just a little bit to do something else. And then maybe it's an even better result. And now you add that to your updated information. And then that's how you evolve as a trainer or a coach or whatever you may be. You see it? Yeah. Yeah. It's really powerful. By the yeah. way, by the way, mm. you need to read a book or two. 
I'm looking at your bookshelf that, behind that, you, Bob. That, that's, that's, <laughs> that's my problem. I, there's so much information coming uh, in. Yeah. And to organize it, it's it's yep. okay, especially when you're limited on time. Yeah. As I've grown up, the more responsibility, the harder it is to organize this information in, in meaningful ways. And it's, it's yeah, it just builds up almost. Uh, yeah. It is. It is. Can, can I ask you a question? Yeah. How are you organizing it right now? Like, like how do you capture the information? Well, I, a lot of it is, is to do with writing. So I just pretend whatever the the subject is i go through the process of writing a book for myself and say okay if i was 15 years old or 20 years old how would i try to display this information to myself in the most meaningful way in a, in a categorized way so i can approach it from you know whatever angle and still wind up with meaningful results or meaningful information right you, know? you read richard feynman yeah, surely you're joking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, okay. That's so, so that's you sound like him. Okay. <laughs> Which is oh, a good, I, that's that's a huge. That's probably the that's, best compliment. Well, that's a good. That's a good thing. That's that's a compliment. It's like it's like because you, you think of a guy that was like you know what what arguably the second smartest physicist of the 20th century, right? Arguably, um, and then you think about his process and 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 the way that he taught and the way that he recommended that you understand things you're 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 like I said love your process i love your process i love where you're at keep going and then if you need help you let me know okay i will in the future for sure awesome all right man great to talk to you i gotta run to my next call okay thanks a lot though so they're going to orient to the left and then anteriorly orient to, to try to create the downforce Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have no coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. So today is Wednesday. That means tomorrow's Thursday, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Coffee and Coaches Conference call as usual. These have been great calls. We got lots of people on there now. Great Q&A, solving a lot of problems. And uh, so please join us for that. Today's Q&A is actually a segment from one of the Q&A calls uh, where I was talking with, with Manuel. Manuel is a weightlifting coach, and we're talking about the pelvic orientation in the in the split jerk. And so we were looking at compensatory strategies for uh, the the lack of external rotation space, the inability to superimpose IR, and what we might see as far as strategy. So we broke that down. Additionally, I threw a segment from the YouTube channel um, on, on the, the end of this uh, in regard to the uh, mechanics associated with half kneeling or split stance, so you can actually see those uh, represented. So, so again, I think this is going to be a really good segment for a lot of people. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Don't forget, put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. Everybody have an outstanding Wednesday. I will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Hey, Bill, I was um, trying to rethink the split jerk. So I was working with some athletes uh, this weekend, and I saw some of them would have, so they were, let's assume left foot forward, gotcha. right foot behind. Yep. Um, some of them would have, would be on the, would have their, be supernated on their front foot. Yep. Others would be, uh, you know, the knee would be turning out the back on the back leg. And gotcha. some of them were, and some of them were turning out both knees. Yeah. 
you know, together. Yeah. So I was, I was wondering about probably pelvic orientation with, with that. So I was wondering if it would be correct. This was my thought process. So like if your front leg, if your knee's bowing out on your front leg, you probably are getting pushed forward on that side. You've lost the ER or the IR on the left. So you're just using uh, ER. You probably have an oblique if your back leg is uh, ERing hard because that's where you have the space. And then you would have an orientation, anterior orientation, if both knees were uh, going out. But yeah. then I got lost. At first, I didn't know if that was correct. And then I got lost. What would happen if you switch legs and your right leg is forward? Well, that'd be really hard to do, I would think, if you're an accomplished weightlifter to switch legs. Uh, uh, well, uh, they weren't. So, <laughs> but they, some of them, <laughs> okay, fair they enough. Had a, they had a tendency. <laughs> so, you know, one guy had a tendency to jerk with his right leg forward as well, and then that threw that threw the whole. That was a wrench in the whole thought process. I, I honestly, I think, I think your your construction and and perceptions are dead on, right? So what you're seeing as ER representations visually, they're giving you like the hint. It's like, okay, I don't have, I don't have access to this space here. I got to move out here. The reason they got to move out, remember, you're always going to superimpose IR on ER. Well, if I don't have ER here, I got to go get it here. And then I got to figure out a way to create the downforce. So I think that you're absolutely right. So you're seeing the ER representations. They're anteriorly orienting or they're going to drive. I mean, they're going to drive anything forward to get the downforce, right? Um, so you'll see, you'll see the thorax compression and the whole, whole shebang to try to get the, uh, the iron to the ground. So I, number one, I think you're dead on. Uh, number two, if the right leg goes forward, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. Neither well, did I. I was, like, I was like, it's like oh, think, think, think about this. Think about all the potential strategies that are available. So, so here's what you do know. Here's what you do know. They're going to, they're going to have an ER space. They're going to find a way to IR what their strategy is going to be. You're going to have some people that, that drive a knee inward to try to create the, the IR, right? You'll have people that show a similar representation. So if you got somebody that's, that's, that's pushed way forward, has a lot of the, the posterior lower compressive strategy before they even start to lift, they're going to be the people that kind of look the same as, as the people that were on the left leg lead, right? They're going to try to demonstrate a lot more uh, ER, but chances are they're going to have an orientation um, within the entire system as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so their turn is going to be like this, you know, like I always say, turning like a refrigerator where everything kind of turns as a block. Okay. But again, it's like, I don't know which one, which one they would use. You would probably see a lot more of the, of the, uh, um, the knee moving medially with the right leg lead though. Yeah. In this case, it was, it was moving laterally because they were just so supinated. So there's, so this there's. Way. Okay, then they're sh they're showing you that they're all the yard representation there. Yeah. Yeah, there was no again, IR. Yeah, and then so so again, so so chances are what you're going to see there is they're going to orient, so they're going to orient to the left and then anteriorly orient to to try to create the downforce. That's a that's a pretty wicked twist. Yeah, yeah, I, I noticed it. I was like, Ooh. I mean, I tried to cue them through it, and that was yeah. a little bit helpful, but. Uh, I didn't have time to get through going deep, but I just made the mental note. I was yeah. trying to think about but, that but, ever since. Like, like I said at the very beginning of your question, it's like, I think your description is dead on. I think you totally get it. Okay, awesome. So I've been going back and forth on email 
with uh, Eddie from Germany. Eddie's an osteopath in Germany. And we've been discussing how we would utilize half kneeling positions or split stance positions and how it would affect the orientation and behavior of the pelvis. So I thought I would shoot a video and sort of break down the half kneeling position a little bit more in detail than what we've been used to. And hopefully it'll answer some questions that you may have as to how you're gonna implement this in half kneeling or split stance activities to achieve the outcomes that you've been seeking. So I have my pelvis set up here on the stool in sort of a, a split stance orientation or half kneeling orientation so we can manipulate it a little bit easier and, and show you some of the positions that are very common in regards to execution of certain activities in half kneeling or, or split stance or some of the things that you're going to see in your athletes or clients. And one of the most common things you're probably going to see is you're going to see people assume this half kneeling or split stance orientation with one hip higher than the other. And what I want you to recognize is that what you're typically seeing under these circumstances is that the pelvis is actually going to be oriented towards the downside leg, but it's also going to be positioned in a position of inhalation. So you're going to get extra rotation of both ilia and you're going to get counter mutation of the sacrum. Now, what this does is it creates a descension of the pelvic diaphragm. So, so this is a very low pressure situation inside the pelvic diaphragm, which pushes some of the effort towards the extremity musculature, which is one of the reasons why you'll see people complain of quad tightness in a, in a split stance or half kneeling position, or they'll complain about, about tightness in the front of the hip, or they'll complain about anterior knee pain because they're placing more demand on the extremity musculature. This increases pressure and tension at the joints, and so that might be what they're actually sensing. If we want to create a more stable structure through the pelvis, we have to create a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm. So we need an overcoming contraction and concentric orientation of that pelvic diaphragm. And the way we do that is by leveling the pelvis actively. So for those people that are presenting with that one hip higher than the other, so they're, they're in external rotation, what we need to do is actually push the front side hip downward. In doing so, we actually create an internal rotation of that, of that front side hip which moves the ilium into internal rotation, which immediately mutates the sacrum and starts to bring the pelvic diaphragm upward towards concentric orientation. As I push this side down, I pick up activity on the inside of the downside thigh, which actually opens the outlet on this side, which also promotes a concentric pelvic diaphragm. So now I have a much more stable structure that I can perform my half kneeling exercises in or my split stance activities. And this should happen as I move actively through a split stance or as I assume a stable position in half kneeling. Once again, for those people that cannot create this concentric orientation or this propulsive phase in half kneeling or in split stance, they will typically complain about tightness or pressure or pain. Now, if I take us to more of a side view, you can see that I probably have this potential orientation issue to deal with as well. If I have an anteriorly oriented pelvis, I have lost the relative mo motion and therefore I have no relative position change capabilities. To overcome the anterior orientation, I have to use the proximal hip musculature to capture the position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur. If I can capture this position, then I can restore the relative position change that's necessary for me to capture the concentric pelvic diaphragm. This is going to allow me to be stable and comfortable at half kneeling or allow me to propel through my split squat. So let's take a look at these positions in half kneeling. 
So as I am resting here on my left knee, I can actually feel that my right hip is, is now higher. So that's going to be that inhaled position. So both sides of my pelvis are actually in an inhaled position and both hips are in ER. So for me to capture an IR position of the hip in a concentrically oriented pelvic diaphragm, what I want to do is I want to cue a downward position with this hip. So I'm not sagging into the hip, I'm physically pushing it down. So think about pulling up with abdominals on the left side and pushing the right hip down. Now what I've done is I've oriented the acetabulum so they're now both facing forward into an antiverted position which captures internal rotation on both hips. Now, here's the kicker. I have to make sure that I'm maintaining the position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur first. If I don't do that, I don't get this relative position change and I can't capture the IRs. I'll stay in ER and those are the people that are gonna complain about tightness in the front of the hip, tightness in the quad, or knee pain on either knee. This is one of the reasons why this half kneeling position is so important, is because it's going to transfer to all of my split stance activities. If I cannot capture the maximum propulsive position in half kneeling, the chances of me capturing in a split stance are minimal. Keep in mind there are some clients that are not qualified to be in half kneeling, nor are they qualified for split stance activities. Your goal under those circumstances are to recapture the intentional anterior and posterior orientation of the pelvis. This assures that I can maintain position of the ischial tuberosity relative to the femur, which gives me the capacity to restore relative positions within the pelvis. After you beat yourself up and after you stop the bleeding on your forehead, you know, um, that, that's where you got to sit down and then you got to be rational. You got to say, okay, what, what, what can I do here? Um, so my question was in, was in regards to reflecting on, um, successes versus failures, because I think it's really, really something that's like, I'm, I think it's intuitive to reflect on failures much more. Not it's, you know, it's not easy, but you look back on a day and you're like, wow, could I have sucked anymore? And then you're like, okay, <laughs> you know, what, what should I have done differently? It's easy to ask that question. Right. But in the case, cause I also have had those days where it's just like, everything goes right, you know, for some reason or another, it's just like, everything just kind of clicks. Yeah. Um, and in those, in those cases, when you have those days, it's like, what, you know, and I know everyone's process is different, but from the perspective of reflecting on successes, it's like, how do you kind of go about looking at those situations as things that you could still improve upon when, um, you know, they do go as well as you expect them to go? I, I don't know if that makes sense. Well, okay. So, so um, one of the things that, that you have to be able to do, and this is very difficult because humans are, are emotionally driven, is that you're passing judgment on, on an outcome, okay? The universe does not care about you, okay? Sorry, I know your mom probably does, right? But, but the universe does not care. And so the universe produces these outcomes and it doesn't say one is good or one is bad, it just says what is. And so that's the first step that you have to go. You have to say, this is just an outcome. So you miss a lift, Let's just say that you're training, you miss a lift that you think you should have got, okay? It's just an outcome. There's a lot of factors that went into that outcome that you have no idea exist, okay? And, and then there's some that you might be able to, to surmise in, in, in retrospect, you go, oh, I had a crappy night of sleep. That kind of makes sense. So you blame that, even though it was because you didn't eat enough oatmeal that day, right? 
So you tell yourself a story after the fact to, to come up with the solution, right? And so, so what you need to focus on is process, okay? So, so anybody that's in the, in the purple room knows that I have three pictures above my big giant mirrors and the middle one is process. And so what you do is you don't change the process regardless of the outcome. You have to ask yourself the same questions. What happened? What went into that that I have any measure of control over? What could I have done differently? So no matter how great you think you are that day where you're breaking your arm, patting yourself on the back or how much you think you suck that you bang your head on the steering wheel like I do on the way home, right? And so you got to stop judging it. And then you just say, this is what is. And then you, you like, literally, it's the same process. The hardest thing to do is when you're feeling so, so good about yourself and everything did seem to go well. Think about this. How many favorable outcomes are there? I'm asking you a question. Um, should I say the answer that I was going to say, the one that I think you want me to say? <laughs> I want you to say whatever you want. Zero, zero. No, it's a, it's like, okay, but, but it's like, okay, so let's just say you've got, you've got 455 on the bar and you want five, okay? And you get five, right? And you rack and you go, man, that was easy. Okay, so you accomplished the initial task, but what if you could have got eight and you, and you just stopped yourself because you had five in your head? So it would eight have been more favorable than five under those circumstances. Well, yeah, it kind of like, you know, if, if you're a lifter, you go, hey, I got eight where I should have got five. What an awesome day. So five was favorable, but eight could have been better, right? So, so there's degrees of, of so if, if, if I got this dead center line and I, on this side, everything is favorable and everything is, is crappy over here. This is like, this is a lot less crappy than this one. And this is a lot, lot less favorable than this one, right? So there's this infinite number of possibilities that you might rank as good or bad, right? And so you got to start thinking about like, you know, not in, in degrees because it doesn't matter. So, so again, we go right back and we say, well, we got to start thinking about process because if, 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 if this is the, the center line and, and I'm only here and I go, I was successful. Well, why didn't you go here? So I, I need to ask the same questions. It's like, so again, it's like, okay, I'm on this side of favorable because that's the decision that my brain made. It's a, like, okay, I feel good about myself now because I did something nice and good and whatever. Okay, but why didn't I do better? So ask the same questions because it's the same thing. It's like, all I did was move the zero point to where I, where I landed and now everything over there is better. It's like, okay, well, why didn't I go there? Well, because that, that's what you got to figure out. So, so it's your process. So you ask yourself the same questions. It's like, okay, what happened? What did I put into this that may have been an influence? What are the other possible influences? Maybe the ambient room temperature was, was a little too cold or a little too hot, or maybe there was sun in my eyes that was reflecting off the, up the mirror because you, you like to look at yourself in the mirror when you do your squats right um it, like there's like all of these things maybe the the maybe you know i don't know does anybody still listen to slipknot when they lift weights i don't know um i, I just remember that from the olden days um it was like maybe i had the wrong music on maybe you're listening to like air supply from the the, the 1980s and it was like it, it chilled you out too much maybe you had on a pink shirt and like like monica like is that a pink shirt monica yeah so maybe you had a pink shirt on and we all know that pink makes you weak in the gym right so again, there's, 
you have to, you just have to look at this as a process because you know process never goes this way right it's always like you know right so again there's always going to be unknown unknowns and there's going to be what known unknowns and there's going to be knowns and then it's like so you manage what you can but focus on process stop judging yourself whether you are right or wrong and like I said and I know I know you're going to do it because you're human we all do it but this is when you when you literally sit down and you and you're doing a reflection on something very specific instead of like after you beat yourself up and after you stop the bleeding on your forehead you know um, that, that's where you got to sit down and then you got to be rational. You got to say, okay, what, what, what can I do here? What influences do I have? What measures can I control? That's what you want to do. That was awesome. Yeah. Super insightful. Okay. Thank you. As long as you know where you're going, you can create this context. And then, and then the exercises start to start to show you what to do. Good morning, happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, man, a busy Friday, busier than normal. Got a big podcast coming up this afternoon, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, just a quick housekeeping. Um, IFSU, we got some new content that's going up um, talking about programming, so be on the lookout for that. I'm gonna try to get that up this weekend for you. Um, Yesterday's coffee and coaches conference calls might have been top five um, just because we had such a variety of topics um, Great people as usual, but just total fun And so today's another segment from that and this came from from Timus And it was actually a topic that we don't talk about too often because we're always talking about bringing people back to early propulsion Because we're always worried about trying to capture relative motions and things, but we have to be able to move people through each of these propulsive phases effectively. And one of the transitions is from this middle to uh, late propulsive representation. If we wanna do this effectively and make sure we're getting a good representation in a, like a, a max propulsive foot, we gotta make sure that we, we're moving effectively through middle propulsion. And then we have to capture this late propulsive representation um, to allow this full expression of explosive capabilities. And so we got to talk about that. So this is really cool because we broke it down into pieces. Uh, we talked about sacral orientation, we talked about exercise selection, and how that might look. So again, this is going to be a really, really good segment for a lot of people. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and post your question there. Um, if we don't do the consultation, put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Friday. Uh, podcast will be up on uh, Sunday morning, as usual. I will see you guys next week. So I would like to bring it back to biomechanics a little bit. Um, so as, as you were talking about pelvis, so pelvis gets late, early, then you have ER, and then you get ER again, right? right. So if, if we bring this context into split squat, and if we're working with runners, I'm sorry, what exercise are we doing? You cut out on me, uh, sir. Split squat, split squat. Split squat, yes, sir. Yes. So if, if we are working with the runners who land close to max P and then go to late, right? So they never get access to early. Would so it hang on, be, uh -huh. hang on, hang on. They do have access to early. It's just very, very, very brief. They, they have to. So um, let me- That's let me just, there. Yeah. Let, hang on, let me let me interrupt you for just a second, okay? So so when they land, all right, so the, the tibia actually has to bend. So they actually land slightly ahead of their center of gravity. 
okay? okay? And that's to create from the ground up. Remember we talked about a wave, right? So, so the mm -hmm. wave actually starts to bend the skeleton. So it helps us recoil. And again, you, you get, the, you get the, the waveforms that go through the musculature, the waveforms are going through the bones, right? But there's actually bends in the bone that, that, that help us recoil. So I have to land slightly ahead of the center of gravity. So it, it, there is a, a representation of early, but it might be like the world's fastest early kind of a thing, depending okay. on how fast you're running. It's like a top speed sprinter. Mm -hmm. um, it would be like, you probably can't even see it because uh -huh. they land so close to max speed. Okay. okay. I just want to make sure that's clear. Okay. Now, Very good. sorry, sorry about so, that. No, no worries. No worries. Uh, so if we, if we are doing split spot with them, right. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we sort of try to work in that range between late and IR, so that's what they, that's where they produce the force and, and get the speed. Right. Would that make sense to sort of, if it's the lead leg to pull it back. Right. Because then we have that late, Ilium position. So we're orienting the spine. So let's say it's, it's the right leg lead. Right leg. Orienting the spine to the right. So we have the ER phase of the right ilium. No? Because I thought that this is IR and hang it's on, down hang late. On, hang on, uh -huh. hang on, hang on. Uh, stand up. Please. Put right. your right leg in front of the left. Okay. Okay. Which way is your sacrum facing? Okay, if the right foot is in front of the left, it is always facing that direction when there's relative motion present. Mm -hmm. So, right. yeah. So, if you try to turn the sacrum uh -huh. against the relative mechanics, as you turn the pelvis towards the front, mm -hmm. you just lock the pelvis into one piece. Does that make sense? Okay. So if you so if you turn the sacrum forward with a right foot lead, okay, mm -hmm. the pelvis becomes one piece. If I turn the same side, you mean yes? Yes, sir. Okay. 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 Which means that as I hit square to the front, it's just like descending in the split squat and then boom, the pelvis becomes one piece. Then if I want the, the sacrum to face right with the right foot forward, I got to tip it forward and up and over on the oblique axis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does that make sense? And then if you put the weight in the, in the other hand, would that mean that you access IR from that position at the bottom of the spot? Or you still stay in the locked pelvis and you just create more compression? Okay, if you're descending, you're going from an from a ER bias to an IR bias, and then the weight makes it easier for you to get into the IR bias. So you're still going to lose relative mm -hmm. motion, but you're not gonna be facing the, you're not gonna be facing the lead leg, unless, like I said, unless you orient. I see. Because the minute you hit square to the front, the pelvis is now one piece. Okay. 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 The only way you're going to get it get it up and over is to orient. So, so what would be the sort of optimal strategy to to work in that range between IR and late for runners in a in a in a context of a split squat? What would so be which, the position? Which leg is in late? So let's say it's a right lead leg. Okay, so what if what what what's going on on that backside? Compression. The a back leg. At the back leg, um, is the late propulsion? Is that yeah? Okay. So then we would actually like to work on the back leg. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Or, what else? What else can I do? What can I do to the lead foot to make it more like late? 
more like lathe. Um, From the ground up, what would you do? What's a lathe foot look like? Elevate the, the forefoot. No. What's a, what's a lathe okay. foot look like? Is the heel on the ground in lathe? Yes, is no, it's leaving. It's leaving the ground. Okay. Is the, is the first metatarsal head down on the ground? Yes. Is the toe in traditional extension? Yes. Could I make a foot look like that? Yes. Yes, I could. So just, just get it up like this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then would you would you have the, the pelvis facing away from the lead leg? And then go it down have to the- to. To, It would have yeah. to under those mm -hmm. circumstances, right? But as I descend, mm -hmm. right? And again, we're playing with middle outward. We're not hitting the yeah. end range of late. You understand that? Like we're yes, not hitting end ranges of late. You want to hit end ranges of late, try single leg bounds, right? Okay. Going across the ground. So, so again, it's mm -hmm. like, what are you trying, what are you trying to achieve here? Are you, are we, what context are we trying to represent late propulsion in? Are you just trying to access mm -hmm. it? Or are you trying to train it in a specific context where velocity and force are, are an influence? Well, uh, my intention was to, to sort of access that range between full IR and, and late so they can sort of time things well so they don't have those SI or, or whatever neck problems that they might get if they cannot access those ranges. Uh -huh. So to sort of have a full spectrum of that uh, transition, that was kind you know, of the do you, know a, do you know what a sprinter step up is? Not really. So if you step up on a high box, okay, left foot, mm -hmm. then, you, then you drive a cross connect at the top okay. uh, yeah. of the step up, and then you drive uh -huh. heel off the ground, you immediately uh -huh. go into a late representation. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's a nice little way to sort of create that. Okay, that okay. I see. You see I what see. I'm getting at? So from IR straight to late, yeah. That, that's, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, that's so, okay. yeah. Okay. and actually, it's, it actually goes early, middle, late as you step up, right? Uh -huh. Yeah, so, okay, so, okay. Makes okay. sense. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's, yeah. that's helpful. And yeah. Hang on, I'm not done. This is really good. Okay, okay? <laughs> so, so think about this. So uh, put the weight in your right hand. Uh-huh. Okay, step up with the left foot dynamically go to the end range where you're doing the cross connect with your left elbow to the right knee. Okay. So here's what you just did. All right. You drove, uh, you drove uh, more IR into the, the grounded foot yeah. on the step. Okay. Yes. So you delayed my ability to go all the way through late because mm -hmm. in late the IR is, is waning, right? We're taking away IR as we go to the end of late. Right. Yes. Okay, so I put the weight in my, my right hand. So now I can actually control how far and how fast I go into late. So if I got somebody that I'm just training from middle to, to late and you wanna sort of slow that down so you can actually capture the late position, put a weight in the right hand, do the cross connect at the end of the step up. And now we have something that's really cool. Once you capture that, take the weight out of their hand and then it becomes a jump off the box. You see it? Yeah, yeah, okay. I see. You see, you, you see yeah. how you-, you yeah, like yeah, yeah. As long as you know where you're going, you can create this context, and then and then the exercises start to start to show you what to do. It's like, what do I need? What am I trying to do? Be very very specific with, with where you want to be. If I'm training middle to late, capture middle to late. Do it in a controlled circumstance. Use load, use speed that will allow you to capture the context. And then it's like, now I got to take you all the way through late to be explosive. So let's just say that oh, we're working on acceleration. Yes. Right. So I just gave you the position of acceleration with the with the cross connect step up. Mm 
mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And now I got to train through that. So that becomes, like I said, that becomes your bounce. That becomes the, the step up jumps and things like that. Like that's why you do that stuff. And, and the reason to, to uh, prolong the IR phase, so the max propulsion, so getting the weight to the opposite side. Yes. What benefit would that give? Would that give the sort of the wider option of movements, like wider range of movements in that IR? So or? It, it keeps someone from going too late too soon. Too soon. Okay. Because if so they, they don't skip, go, if they go too fast, if they go, if they go too fast, right? I will create. I again, we talk about the tibia moving really, really fast over the foot. It's like I may miss out on on my 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 max P through the foot. Mm-hmm. I might have to use my pelvis orientation to create max P. I might have to use my knee to create max P. I might have to use my suboccipital. Yes, yes, you see it. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so that sort of makes sure that we have those relative motions in max P, right? And then we can force produce at the sort of optimal. You don't have relative motions at max P. You want them to get to max P. Okay. Because if I lose relative motion too soon, Mm -hmm. I'm orienting to get to max P. You see it. It's like, okay. it's like, here's max P, here's where I'm starting. So there's this space represents relative motion. As I get closer uh-huh. and closer to max P, right? Things lock up, yeah? And then Yeah, it's like, see, like here's motion, here's no motion at max P because I, I need the biggest force into the ground. I don't yes. want to dissipate that force, so I want to be the most rigid representation I can be. Uh, Prior okay. to that, I need space to get there. But if, if max P is here where there's no motion and I'm starting from here where I have no motion, Yes. Right. I don't have any space to create normal representations of max P. And so I have to create it somewhere else. So this is the orientation to create motion because I don't have time to create motion. I have to tip my pelvis forward or I'll jam my Mm -hmm. head forward. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. Thanks a lot. And that, that prolonged time for, for, to, to get to max P, does that create, create more force sort of generation? Would that like create that explosiveness? It gives you time. Mm-hmm. It's time to produce force, right? The amount of okay. force, the amount of force to execute is dependent on the context. How much weight do you have mm-hmm. in your hand? How high is the box? Yeah. How fast are you moving? How much do you weigh, okay. right? What are your force producing capabilities? How much pressure can you generate? It's like, that's what determines mm-hmm. force. Okay, fantastic. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome, sir. Appreciate it.